Well, if you're not a Christian here today, you are in a great place, and we are honored again to have you. And if you're just here kind of checking things out, and you got questions, you're not even sure whether you're a Christian or not, that's okay. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to... We're going to single you out. You are, you are welcome to just listen, and we would love to talk with you. We've got questions, and again, we're honored to have you. But if you are a Christian here today, there are some things that I know about you, <laughs> and you know about me. I know many of you very well. Some of you I don't know as well. You're newer, or we just haven't spent as much time together. But even my closest friends in this church, even my own precious wife, um, uh, even of her, my, my knowledge is very limited. I mean, you think about your own life and all of the thoughts and all of the things that go inside of you and, and even those that know you best really only know you in a very limited way. But I know with absolute confidence these there are three things that are certain if you are in Christ here today. And, and it's these, and I'm borrowing these from Mike Imlin in his book, Crosstalk. He's a CCF counselor and writer. But, and it's this, these are the three things. You and I are always and simultaneously saints, sinners, and sufferers. We are those three things. We are saints who need continuous confirmation of our identity in Christ. We are sinners who, who need to constantly see our sin in light of God's redemptive mercies. And we are sufferers who need comfort in the midst of our afflictions. Those, th- those three realities are always true of us and if, you are, if we are in Christ. And as we come together each Lord's Day, God meets us in the Gospel of Christ to minister to us by the power of the Holy Spirit as saints, sinners, and sufferers. This is what He's doing every Lord's Day. <coughs> I know it sounds simple, but it's not simplistic to say that. I know you, you look at your own life and you think about what you're going through now and, what you, and, your, and your whole life history and your story and our lives, our circumstances, our, our relationships, our our situations, they're, they're very, very complex and, and really messy. But God graciously brings this welcome sense of clarity into this complexity. And, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Supreme Court Justice in the early part of the 20th century, he, he, he's, he once said this, he says, I would not give a fig for this. That's not much, apparently. I don't like figs, so this really resonates with me. It says, I would not give a fig for the simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of the complexity. Now, you may not get that, but listen, unless you're a very, very young child today who's here and listening, most of them are probably downstairs or in the nursery across the parking lot, unless that's you, you and I live on the other side of complexity. And we desperately want truth that is simple and yet acknowledges and embraces that complexity. Well, this morning we're going to look at a psalm that gives us simplicity on the other side of complexity. But that David sings in the midst of very complicated and messy circumstances. And, and, and he sings with the simplicity of a saint, sinner, and sufferer. And we're, we're going to see that. And so this, and the song isn't just for David. It's not just like, oh, that was interesting what we used in his life. It's for us. 
It's for it's given to us in Scripture in that, that inscription at the beginning of the psalm, which is part of the inspired Scriptures, to the choir master, a psalm of David. That just shows us it's, it's written by David, but it's, it's intended for the congregation. It's intended to be sung by God's people, to be sung by Israel first, and to be sung by us in the church today. And so, it's a song for those who are facing troubles. It's a, song, it's a song for those who feel like they're between a rock and a hard place. It's a song for those, for, for you when you're, you just feel like you're in the pressure cooker of life. It just, it's building, it's building, and it feels like it's going to explode. Just some of the, I, know, I know some of the pressures that some of you are facing, but I can't possibly know because I, I don't know like that. But, but some of the pressures some might be facing today, just painful losses. Whether it's death, or the the loss of a friendship that's that's broken now, the, the a job loss. Some some of you, it's it's bitter conflict in your life right now. Some you're you're being slandered, you're being attacked by somebody, and 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 that's the that's the pressure. Some of you, it's sickness or physical disease or deterioration of your body. For others, it's unmet expectations. It's not what I thought my marriage would be like. This is not what I thought parenting would be like. This is not what I thought retirement would be like. These golden years of my life, they're just, they've not lived up to that. For some, it's sin. It's guilt, shame, and possible consequences of sin. But, but we, we, we have these pressures. and so, so take that. And so I just say that because this song is for us. But let's look at the context of Psalm 31. Just try this on for a stressful situation. A group of enemies has conspired to kill you. They have, they've instigated a widespread smear campaign of, of lies and slander against you. And as a result, your name has just been dragged through the mud. Your reputation is absolutely ruined in the community. When neighbors and former friends see you, they cross to the other side of the street, they will have absolutely nothing to do with you anymore. People that used to be close to you. As a result of these problems, you're struggling with deep, dark thoughts of despair. We would probably even say depression. And you also realize that many of the problems and the troubles you're facing right now stem from your own sin. And so on top of everything else, you're dealing with guilt and, 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 and shame. And, so, and, and not only that, this whole experience has taken its toll on your health. You don't, you don't even have the strength to accomplish just normal daily tasks anymore. You're, you're physically just wasting away. And, and also, just whichever way you turn, there's just more trouble. There's danger and trouble staring you in the face everywhere you look. That's how David describes his situation in Psalm 31. Now, we stop short of that description because it starts in verse 9, and we only read through verse 8. We'll read that, that part in, the, in a moment. Now, we can't be 100% sure of the exact situation that David was facing. We know much of his story, and, and, and it, it could be Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel 15. It, it could be about Saul's pursuit of him. But regardless, what's clear is that the song, it wasn't written on some you know, peaceful hike through the mountains during a songwriting retreat. no. These aren't the words of some, you know, heart-playing poet. Don't picture David like that. And, and he's just in some ivory tower, insulated from all the pressures of, of life. 
That's not it. No, this comes from a man who despaired of life itself. He's, he's singing the blues. These are worshipful blues, but they are, they are blues. I, I know we say something like worshipful blues, and to us that sounds like such a contradiction. Uh, we, our, our culture, it does everything it can to run from suffering, to avoid pain at any and all costs. And so we, we, we try to mask that and ignore it and put it off and avoid pain, suffering uh, in, in any way. And, and that's not just the world out there, that's the church too. The church reflects that tendency in the culture so often. Carl Truman, who's a contemporary theologian, does a lot of writing, he, he wrote an article a few years ago. It was, it was entitled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And he was responding in the article to this kind of superficial thoughts and ideas about worship that are so prevalent in the Western church today. And, 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 he, and he talks about, for, for a little while, when he would go and travel and speak in different settings, pastors' conferences and in churches and different settings, everywhere he went in all the different audiences, he would ask this question early on in his, in his talk, and he would ask this question, what can miserable Christians sing in your church? And every time he asked the question, in every group of believers, pastors, whatever, it was always met with the same response. This uproarious laughter. And, and yet he meant the question in, in all seriousness. What can miserable Christians sing in your church? And he says in the article, this is kind of a concluding statement, it's as if the idea of a broken-hearted, lonely, or despairing Christian was so absurd as to be comical. That's a statement, an indictment of church today. The, the popular thought in the church today is that just kind of normative Christian living is, is just one long, happy, victorious street party. And, and, and so, of course, if we're honest, we know that's not really our experience. That's not, that's not how we live. That's not where we're at. But we, we do think that's the goal. I listened to Eric's message on on the first of the or right before New Year's, and and he addressed this. We we have this kind of goal of this this happy, frothy, victorious, everything's firing on all cylinders kind of Christian life, and that's the expectation. And so we we fall short of that, but we we certainly want to give the appearance of that to others. But that's just not reality. Truman Truman goes on in this article. He says, indeed. The biblical portraits of believers give no room to such a notion. Look at Abraham, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, and the detailed account of the psalmist's experiences. Much agony, much lamentation, occasional despair, and joy when it manifests itself is very different from the frothy triumphalism that has infected so much of our modern Western Christianity. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. It's a long way to get to me saying Psalm 31 is one of those places where God has given us that language. And so let's look briefly at this at this song, and then we're going to prepare, and as we do so, we're preparing to come and worship the Lord at the table this morning, and we're moving towards that. After all, this table is only here 
because our Savior went through anguish for us. We'll say more about that. But this is a song, Psalm 31. It's a song to be sung when you're between a rock and a hard place. What is this song? What characterizes it? I just, it's a difficult psalm to outline, and I think every commentary I looked in had a very different outline, and even the, how they broke it up. But this is how I'm choosing. I'm just, first thing I say is this, and I don't have slides for you today, so, but the outline simple enough. One, sing this song of gritty faith. Sing this song of gritty faith. We'll see this in verses 1 to 8, what we read a moment ago. It's not trite, shallow, sentimental faith. It's, it's this honest, urgent, gritty, desperate dependence upon God. That's what you see in this, in this psalm. You see it right away in David's desperate, God, do it or die kind of plea for help from the Lord. Look at verse 1 again with me. And he starts and he confesses, first of all, I, I do take refuge in you, O Lord. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. And then look at it. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. So he makes this confession that I, I trust you, Lord. And then he just begs the Lord desperately for help. Don't let me be put to shame. Deliver me. Hear me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock of refuge. Save me. I just say, as we talk about faith and trusting God, a strong faith isn't, it's not the person who has their act together and their life together and they don't ever need to ask God for any help. That's not stoicism. That's not strong faith. Faith shows itself in desperate pleading. It's utter dependence, it's confidence that, that the Lord will hear and He cares and He will act to help. That's, that's what this gritty faith shows itself as. It, and this confidence and trust in God isn't because of David's exemplary record of righteousness. Notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say, deliver me according to my righteousness. It's not rescue me, Lord, because I so deserve this. I don't deserve the pain that I'm going through right now. No, he says, but deliver me according to your righteousness. To your righteousness. David's calling on God as a refuge, not based on anything that he brings to the table, but based upon everything that the Lord is and does and all of the things that he's promised to him. All of those promises that God made to David in the context, he's, he's clinging to those. It's because of Your righteousness, Lord. Deliver me. I mean, this is how we should plead to the Lord in times of trouble too. We come pleading the righteousness, the merits of Jesus Christ. This is why we come again to the table and we, we come and remind ourselves it's Christ. It's Christ. And because of Christ, I can come desperate before You, Lord, pleading for Your help and know that You will hear me and You care and You are mighty to save then look at verse 3 and following here. You, <coughs> we have this desperate plea and then we see this expression, this confession of trust and confidence in the Lord. So this, this song of gritty faith, it opens with this string of imperatives. That's verses 1 and 2. He's pleading with the Lord to act. Do something, Lord. But then in verses 3 and following here, this, this gritty faith is seen in this longer string 
of indicatives. That's that verb form. It's just a statement of fact. And so it goes from Lord do to Lord you are. Notice the change in verse 3. So it's verse 1 and 2. It's Lord do this, do this, do this. Now in verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead and you guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord. Faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad, open place. Now we, say, we see that and it sounds wonderful and we want the psalm to end right there. <laughs> say this is great. This will be a great eight verse psalm. I can memorize that and it would just be wonderful to put on my mirror in the morning when I'm getting ready. But we're, there's a verse 9. And we'll see that in a moment. But I want you to note, there has been no rescue yet. Nothing's changed in David, David's circumstances. He, he doesn't, he, but, but still, he's trusting in the constancy of, of who the Lord is and what the Lord does. That's what he's confessing in, this, in these verses. Is his trust in the Lord. This is who you are. This is how you act. This is what you do. It's not, it's not perfect faith. That's not it. It's not like, well, man, what I just need is more faith. That's not it. But it's gritty faith. The, the whole psalm, as we're going to see as we walk through the rest of it, it's this repeated fight for faith, trust, dependence upon God in the midst of our trouble. And it, and it goes back and forth. And we're going to see this again as we walk through it. But, the, but again, the psalm doesn't end at verse 8. He's going to plunge into the depths of despair in verses 9 and following here. And yet then he's going to emerge again in verse 14 with another strong affirmation. But I trust You, Lord. I, I, I say, You are my God. My times are in Your hand. And this is how it is. It's, it's up and it's down. And, and uh, we'll say more about that in a moment. But another thing I want you to note about this gritty faith that we see in these opening verses is how personal it is. It's not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's not just conceptual. It's, it's trust in the Lord Himself. Notice, it's the Lord Himself who is David's rock and refuge. You are my rock. You are my refuge. In You I trust, Lord. And the Lord Himself is the one who's leading and guiding and rescuing and redeeming and seeing and knowing and delivering. He's doing all of these things personally. And, and so you just keep that in mind and then let's look back at verse 6. Look back, Psalm 31, verse 6. Maybe that, that verse kind of stood out and said, that, 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 I'll see how that fits. Here he is talking about trusting God and then seemingly out of nowhere, verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. But I trust in the Lord. Why does he say that there? What does he say? What does he remember? He's he's talking about God Himself, this personal trust, dependence upon the Lord alone as his refuge. And then he breaks in there. And I think he's 
I think it's because many, even those who in good times say they follow God and profess to follow Him, even those, they in times of trouble, they'll turn to idols when the pressure builds. Rather than trusting in the Lord alone, in the Lord Himself, in the personal sovereign Lord, people look to other things. I mean, we know this tendency even in our own lives, even as believers. There's, there's no shortage of idols that people run to and cling to in, in our own day when troubles come. Run to medication. Run to vacations. Run to entertainment, distractions. Run to shopping. Run to food. Run to alcohol. Run to weed. Run to immorality. Run to fitness. Run to moving. Just run away. Run, you know, change location, change circumstances, get another, get a fresh start. I mean, these are the, these are things we, we're looking for the help that the Lord Himself intends to provide us. In Himself. So, you feel like you're between a rock and a hard place this morning. If so, sing this song of gritty faith. If, if you don't see a way out of the circumstances you're in, if you, if you don't know how, long you're, how, lo- how much longer you can take it, if you're, you don't know if you're going to make it through or how you're going to make it through, if you don't know how long you can hold on, sing these words in faith. Just borrow David's words. Make them, make them your own. Desperately plead for His help and protection and deliverance and, and, and for Him to be a refuge. And confidently express who He is and what He's done and what He's promised to do for you. That's where, that's where it begins. But as I said, the song goes on. The simplicity we need is on the other side of complexity. And we're going to see that complexity in verses 9 and following here. So we, we sing this song. It's a song of gritty faith. But the second movement in this psalm is sing this song of, of honest anguish. Of honest anguish. Look at verse 9. And so we're still singing in gritty faith, but as you, as we'll look through these verses, there's this piercing, honest, very transparent expression of deep sorrow and full body uh, weariness and intense groaning and profound weakness and loneliness and rejection and terror. So we see in these verses that we'll see in these verses he, he just pours out his anguish in verses nine to thirteen here. There's this is still an expression of faith. He's not just crying and just blabbering to the wind. He's crying out to the Lord. Thus he's confident that God is hearing him. He's not just complaining for complaining's sake, he's taking his complaint to the Lord. And I know it's I know my own heart and my own tendency. It's easy to when, when things get hard and when the pressure cooker is really going, to, to just become sullen and turn in on myself and complain to myself and you know mumble under my breath and, and in my heart about how bad things are. I'm just talking to myself. It's easier for me, depending on the circumstances, to complain to other people. But, but it takes faith to sing my complaint in prayer to the Lord. This is, this is what we see. This is what David does here. Verse 9. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief 
and my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. I mean, one of, as I said at the beginning, one of the things we need to see here is David, like us, is a saint, a sinner, and a sufferer. So as we see his trouble, just, you know, I mean, he's already made this clear. The Lord has redeemed him. The Lord is his refuge. He is a saint. He's a child of God. But we also see he's a sinner. And his own sin is, he references here in verse 10, it's behind some of his trouble. His, his iniquity is what's caused his own strength to fail. So his own sin is in the mix here. And then also, he's suffering though in other significant ways. He's not just sinning, he's being sinned against. And so there's all kinds of suffering in the mix. And, and so he's a saint, he's a sinner, he's a sufferer like us. But David, he doesn't hold back in describing his anguish here. There's a whole gamut of thoughts and attitudes and feelings and emotions uh, about this. And so you just look through that, those verses again and you see shame. This is a repeated prayer in this psalm. Don't, Lord, let me not be ashamed. There's guilt He's dealing with his own sin and iniquity. There's, there's terror, fear. There's distress. There's grief and sorrow and sighing. There's, he's, he's physically affected. He's physically wasting away. There's the sting of rejection. He feels useless. That's what's, when he says he's like a broken vessel. He just, I feel worthless. Like, there's, there's no point in my existence. And so, I just... Take those verses, and, and, and one thing I, I think they tell us and show us, something we know, but we need to be reminded of sometimes, is that troubles, sorrows, they're not one-dimensional. Um, it's not ever just physical, or just emotional, or just spiritual, or just relational, or just moral, or just circumstantial. But we sometimes will treat them that way. Even if we say, well, my situation is complex, when we're dealing with one another, we want to just kind of flatten everything out and say, this is what needs to happen. If they would just do this, then it would go away. And that's dangerous. That's just not, that's not a true biblical uh, reality. But, but troubles, they come in all kinds of different forms. They show up at different expressions. They, and they, they're, they kind of cling to different circumstances. They affect us in different ways different times and so just see that as we look through this breadth of of the type of suffering and sorrows that David is experiencing as he's walking through this but no matter how complex it is no matter how multidimensional it is we can and must we we must run to God for refuge in all of our troubles doesn't matter what what kind of mixture and and recipe it is. Even when some of our problems are the result of, are the direct result of sin, we, we, we run to Him. 
we don't, as I know I hear Christians think like this and talk like this, and I, I mean, I, have, I do this myself, we think, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to get my act together before I go to God. I can't, I can't go to Him like this. We've we got other circumstantial problems and other troubles in our life, but we also know that our sin is contributing to part of our sorrows. We say, I can't deal with any of that until I, I clean myself up and I, I defeat this and I'm victorious over this and my own strength, and then I can go to God. That's just so faulty. That's, that's, the, that's what the devil would love for you to believe. And, and, and so... No, we, we run to Him. We can we're run to Him confessing our sins and, and receiving His gracious forgiveness as we do. So this doesn't... And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that like when we do that, He's going to immediately remove all the consequences of our sin. That's not the point. And certainly it's not the case for David. So, so the, just what I want you to see in these verses here is the song we sing between the rock and the hard place. It's a song of honest anguish, pouring out our, our sorrows before the Lord. David lays this out before God. When he, when he felt this pressure cooker of life, he, he didn't just kind of shrug his shoulders and say, eh, oh well, and just kind of toughen it out. And guess it's, just, it's just my cross to bear. I'm just going to toughen, stick it out. That's not his attitude. And he didn't run out and whatever the his period version of this, is running out and buying the latest self-help book and how it's going to answer all of his problems and fix all of the struggles in his life. He, he, didn't, he didn't drown his sorrows in alcohol. He didn't amass a load of credit card debt, you know, just saying, hey, you know what, what I really need is I, 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 I need a much-deserved vacation. And so I'm just, we're just going to, we'll just pay for it later. He doesn't go shopping he didn't eat a roll of cookie dough. <laughs> he, he didn't grow angry and bitter towards God. He didn't hurt himself physically or do damage to his own body. He, when the tsunami of troubles was crashing on him, he cried out to God. Not perfectly. David's not our perfect example. We'll get to that. But instead of complaining to men about God, he goes to God and complains to God about men. And so crying out to the Lord in your distress, it's, it, it's not out of step with this kind of gritty faith that we saw in the first eight verses. These are not, these are not in competition. It, it, now, when we're crying out in honest anguish, it's not about murmuring against God like Israel did. It, it's, it's, it's we trust in the Lord and we look to Him and we take our honest complaint to Him, knowing again He hears, knowing He cares. Then in verses 14 and following here, David expresses very very clearly again his, his trust is in the Lord and he pleads again with the Lord uh, to rescue him. And so verse 14, But I trust in You, O Lord. I say, You are my God. My times are in Your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And I, I just want you to see, 
just taking all that we've looked at so far in this psalm, look at it all together in your mind. And, and what I want you to see is just this kind of push-pull in the psalm. There's terror in the opening verses and then trust. There's, there's anguish and then there's trust. And, and so Derek Kidner is a great commentator on the psalms. He, a little small in the Tyndale series. He said, David makes the journey from anguish to assurance twice over in the psalm. And so in other words, this psalm is very true to our lives. Isn't it? It's not like we're just, you know, we're just on this steady, you know, escalator. And we just are getting more and more trusting of God all through life. There, no, there's confident faith, and then these waves of distress just crash in on us, and we're we're just expressing our honest anguish to honest anguish to the Lord, and then and then the Lord restores us. There's confession of trust again. Charles Spurgeon said along the same lines: there are there are no great lines of demarcation. Throughout, the strain undulates, falling into valleys of mourning and rising with hills of confidence. This is, this is, the, this is, this is us though, isn't it? That's our lives. It's not just a psalm. This is where we live. And so, brothers and sisters, you may be walking through a very, very dark valley right now. And you may be carrying a load that just seems so heavy. And you just don't know how you can go on. I say, say, borrow these words again. Tell this to God in prayer. Pour out your heart to Him. He hears you. He cares. And even if you can't give voice to it, allow us to cry out to God with you and for you. Bring us in. But know this. Listen, don't miss this. Know this, God will never let you go through more than you can bear. 1 Corinthians 10.13, we know these words, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you are able. Though David's ordeal, it's, it's, it's so terrifying that he, he's despairing even of life itself. God gives him strength to endure. It's not hopeless. God's not into quick and easy solutions. That's not how He works. He doesn't generally just remove the trial the instant we seek Him and ask Him for help. He generally shows us through that pressure what? That my grace is sufficient for you. He brings these things and He allows these things in our life to show us His grace is enough. I mean, Joseph, there's, great, there's so many examples of this in Scripture, but just think of Joseph. God put him in a dungeon for a crime he didn't commit for 20 years. He's just languishing in prison. 20 years. You think God's in a hurry. And we know the rest of the story. Or Paul, God saw fit to put him in, in jail in Caesarea. And we think, you know, if we know Acts, we think, yeah, that was... God was just working so he could get an all-expense-paid trip to Rome, and that's where God wanted him. So, you know, God orchestrated all these things. And so, but then you read Acts 24, 25, it says, after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So the new guy comes in, and then it just, the imprisonment just goes on. And, and we look at that, and we just read that, and it's just a real passing. Two years. Two wasted years, we think. 
God's main apostle in, in custody for over two years, when there's a Gentile world that needs Christ. See, see God's not in a hurry. He's, he, but whatever He brings into our lives, He gives us sufficient grace to sustain us through it. And He, he will. He will. He does. Third, move along. So we sing the song of gritty faith. We sing the song of honest anguish. And then third, in verses 19 to 22, we sing this song of unassailable assurance. Unassailable assurance. Look at this song swell in verses 19 and following. So we've seen this pattern throughout this psalm so far. There's, there's prayer, then there's an expression of trust. There's this prayer of, of petition, and then there's trust. There's this prayer of lament, and then there's trust. And so we expect that pattern to continue, but the psalmist breaks it right here in verse 19. And instead, he just shocks us with this exuberant expression of praise to the Lord. So, so this, this, and what you see in this, in this part of the, the psalm here is this assurance and hope and the, the present help that the Lord gives and this future expectation. It just fuels and drives this praise to the Lord. Verse 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Let's just stop there. I think that's a great verse. Just think about what's being said. There's, there is a goodness that we experience that can be seen by other people. It can be in the sight of the children of mankind. And so, but, but the greater goodness can't be seen. So there are, there are visible blessings we enjoy now. And I think generally Christians experience these. I'm not saying this is not a universal rule. But generally there, are, there tend to be more stable families and happier lives. And there's joy and usefulness in life and ministry and vocation. And that can be observed by other people. Even if they don't acknowledge that God is the one who gives those things, we can see those things. But none of that compares to the goodness of God that no one else can see. I think he's saying that we have the comfort we receive by the Holy Spirit. We have the assurance of being in Christ. Oh, that's goodness. We have the joy of being in God's presence. I mean, these are this is goodness. And, and also, I would say, the goodness of God we experience now is just a small sample of, of the greater goodness yet to come. That goodness that's being stored up for us. Alexander McLaren on that point says, Here we see sometimes the messengers coming with one cluster of grapes on the pole. I realize it's not an image that we tend to, you don't see a guy walking down the street with a cluster of grapes on a pole, but just keep that image. And he says, That's now. There we shall live in the vineyard. Here we drink from the river as it flows. There we shall be at the fountainhead. Here we are in the vestibule of the king's house. There we shall be in the throne room. And each chamber as we pass through it will be richer and fairer than the one preceding. When God begins to compare His adjectives, He does not stop till He gets to the superlative degree. Good begets better, and the better of earth ensures the best of heaven. He goes on, So out of our poor little experience here, we may gather grounds of confidence 
that will carry our thoughts peacefully even into the great darkness. And we may say, what did, or excuse me, we may say, what you did work is much. And it, what God does now is much. What you have laid up is more. And the contrast will continue forever and ever and ever. For all through that strange eternity, that which is wrought will be less than that which is laid up. And get this, and we shall never get to the end of God, nor to the end of His goodness. That's good. Alright, going to hit the gas here. In verse 20, he says in the cover, again, he's continuing to praise the Lord here. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in the shelter, in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for He has wondrously shown His steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Let me just say, the song we sing, it's a song of unassailable, unstoppable assurance. We sing these to the Lord. And then last, sing this song of corporate courage. Sing this song of corporate courage. Look, the last two verses of this psalm, verse 23 and 24. David, David is practicing Ephesians 5, 5.19 here where we, we, it talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to one another. So he sings the song to the Lord throughout this psalm. In verses 1 to 22, he's singing to the Lord. And then in the final lines of it, he turns to, to others around him and he, and he tells them to praise and love and trust in the Lord also. So, Look at verse 23. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all who wait for the Lord. One of the things that that just tells me, and we talked about this last week, but songs that are sung between a rock and a hard place are meant to be sung together. Again, we, we, we would maybe call this psalm a, a, an individual lament. That might be how it's categorized. But it's not to be sung individually. This is for the choir master. This is what we sing in the congregation. We, we sing to one another in the midst of our troubles. Keep trusting the Lord. Look to Him. Look to Jesus. We're constantly singing that to one another as we sing in gritty faith and honest anguish and unassailable assurance and corporate courage to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, we need to sing this song. This is a song for us. It's this song of, again, of gritty faith. This song of, of just honest complaint, honest anguish before the Lord. This song of, of assurance and this song of courage together. When we sing this song, our voices, a couple hundred that they are, they, they join in this mass choir of saints, sinners, and sufferers who have been singing this since these words were written. This, this psalm has ministered to believers throughout centuries here. You see this even in Scripture. This is a psalm that's quoted by several in Scripture. In, 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 you have Jonah who's when he's in the belly of the great fish, who's, 
this song is what's on his heart as he cries out to the Lord from there. And there's a phrase that he pulls right from Psalm 31. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, we call him. His message was rejected. His life was, was so often threatened and just a hard life as a prophet of God in his day. And he borrows a phrase, he lifts a phrase from Psalm 31, which was no doubt his meditation. And it, and it becomes basically a motto for him. That terror on every side. It's repeated throughout Jeremiah, throughout Lamentations. It's, it resonated with him. The anonymous author of Psalm 71, he, he took the Lord as his refuge and he prays the, the opening verses of, of Psalm 31 and he repeats them in Psalm 71. And even beyond biblical history, the, the last words of the great Protestant reformers, John Huss, Philip Melanchthon, and Martin Luther himself, they come straight from Psalm 31. And countless other Christians, these have been some of their dying words. But most significantly, Jesus Himself meditated on this psalm so often that His very, very last words on the cross are direct quote from Psalm 31.5. And you no doubt recognize them as we read through. And, and then Luke 23.46, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he died. And we sing this song because it's a song of Jesus. It's a song sung by Jesus. It's a song that sing, as we sing it, it points to Jesus. What David sang here in Psalm 31 in, in seed form, the greater David, Jesus Christ, he sang in full bloom on the cross. As, as we come to this table in a moment and after we sing and, and worship here, we do so because Jesus committed His Spirit into His Father's hands and died. The One who knew no sin. The One whose suffering wasn't mingled at all with His own sin. There was no iniquity to be found in Him. That's not why Jesus' strength failed. Because of His iniquity. It's not like David. He didn't suffer as a sinner. He suffered as the sinless one. He died for our sins. Our Savior cried out in, in honest anguish on the cross. He gave breath to the words of another psalm that He was meditating on. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And He fulfilled those words. And, and, so, and then Jesus, the, the righteous one, took our sin and worshipped in the midst of His anguish. And He did what what we could never, ever, ever do. Jesus committed His perfect Spirit into the hands of His Father in a way that no one else ever has or ever can. He, he did it all. He paid it all. He committed it all. He absorbed it all. He gave it all. And He defeated it all when He rose from the dead Three days later. And, 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 with, and, and in Christ, the, the blues become the Gospel. And He set this table for us as this perpetual reminder of what He accomplished. That's why we can sing when we're in that pressure cooker, when we're between the rock and the hard place. This table 
This table is for those who are always and simultaneously saints, sinners, and sufferers. This is for us. It's, it says to saints, it says to you as a child of God, remember who you are. You are a redeemed child of the living God. It says to us who are at the same time that we're saints, we're sinners, it says you, your debt has been paid. And it says to us sufferers, the Lord is your refuge. Let's pray together. Lord, meet us. Meet us in the midst of whatever anguish and sorrow and brokenness we're experiencing today. And if it's not now, it may be tomorrow. In You, Lord, we, we take refuge. We, we pray, Lord, with the psalmist in Your righteousness, Lord, deliver us. Incline Your ear to us. Rescue us, Lord, speedily. Enable us to be strong. To trust You, Lord. Let our hearts take courage as we wait for You, Lord Jesus. We need You. Rescue us from our shame as You've, you've taken our place in judgment. And as You have become our sin, our guilt, and, and all of our shame, you, you were rejected and abandoned by Your Father. And remind us, Lord, in this table that You have done that so that we would never be rejected or abandoned. Because we are in Christ. So by faith, Lord, help us to hear Your voice this morning whispering to us peace, belonging for Jesus' sake. We pray, Amen.